Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, the aftermath, the wash-up, the fallout from the election. Call it what you will, there's a lot we still don't know. So we've called in the pundit's pundit, former minister and United Future leader Peter Dunn, to answer those lingering questions about the election nitty-gritty. Plus, the mood of the country. Have we turned a corner this weekend? The All Blacks had a crucial win, the election's over, it's springtime and the cost of the cauliflower is down to $3.99. But first, let's get to some basics with Peter. What is an overhang? An overhang is when a party gets more seats in reality than it's actually entitled to by its party vote. So the Māori Party, for instance, have won four seats on the night, uh, four electorate seats, but their party vote's only about 2.5%, which entitles them to about three seats. So you can't take an electorate seat off them. So they keep the four and Parliament increases by one. That's the overhang. Oh, so that's why, because I read something uh, yesterday that said that we could, it, it's possible that we could end up with 124 seats after special voting is in. Is that if, if the Māori Party win more of those electorate seats? Yeah, and their party vote doesn't go up to equate to that figure. The other factor here, of course, is with the Port Waikato by-election, this peculiar provision in the Act uh, that provides for that, that seat will be added anyway. So Parliament's currently 121 as of Saturday night. Whatever happens in the specials, it will go to 122 when the Port Waikato result comes in. And as you say, there could be other seats added as a result of overhangs. And what does that mean in terms of the coalition, the National Act coalition? That really does mean that New Zealand First is needed. Well, if you, let's take the extreme. Let's say Parliament goes to 124 you need to get 63 to have the barest of majorities. At the moment, National and Act have got 61. Uh, Assuming National loses a seat on the specials, as everyone seems to expect, that could go down to 60. So that's where your deficit occurs. If, on the other hand, National picked up a couple of seats on the specials and Parliament stated about 122, uh, they may find themselves with Act with 64 or 65 seats, so the pressure on forming a coalition becomes less. So we don't know at this stage whether this coalition will need New Zealand First and Winston Peters after all. No, we don't. On the figures on Saturday night, the the, the barest answer is it doesn't, but that's a 61-60 majority. Uh, It's pretty risky. You only have to lose an MP along the way and suddenly it's all square or worse. So... From the point of view of an insurance policy, it would make sense to include New Zealand first in some way. But as I've said previously, the question then becomes what way and what's the price that would be required? I mean, I've heard someone say that he could be made the Speaker of the House. I think that's unlikely uh, for the the simple reason. I don't think a party leader can be a presiding officer of parliament. So he could become the Speaker, but he couldn't also be the New Zealand first leader. Uh, It might be a dignified way for him to go out. It's a guaranteed knighthood involved, and that might be what he craves, but I think it's an unlikely prospect. (laughs) What do you think is a likely prospect? Well, I don't know. At this stage, if I was in the National Party's position, and I got a sense from hearing David Seymour, he's of a similar view, I'd want to get sort of the broad bones of an agreement with ACT sorted out, first of all and then go to New Zealand first and say, this is the arrangement we're looking at. Here's where we see you fitting in. Are you interested? 
I think the risk, if you don't do that and go along and say, let's all sit around the table and work out what to do, is that Peters takes over and runs the show as he has in previous negotiations and it gets drawn out interminably. I've watched this over many elections and I've been pretty unimpressed by how it's happened in some ways. So for me personally, uh, it's about me building a relationship with those respective parties that I want a serious government to be uh, formed. My job now is to go to work and actually make sure that we can form a strong, stable government. This is a real test of Luxon's leadership. He says he's good at mergers and acquisitions. He's really got to put his stamp on this government right from the outset and how he carries out these negotiations will be his first test. Let's move on to special votes. More than half a million special votes are yet to be counted and the final results could be different. Why does it take so long to count special votes? Well, that's, that's a very good question. The explanation used to be that special votes have to be transported back to the electorate for which they were cast before they can be counted. So if you cast a vote for Ohio, for instance, and you were in the far north, then the votes have to come back to the counting place here. Uh, then there's also the question of the votes that were cast overseas have to come back. And it's allowing time for all that to happen. And then the count takes place. They don't do it in dribs and drabs. They do it in one go when they've got them all in. So that's the process. You could argue in today's environment with technology, although it didn't serve us too well on Saturday, uh, that that process could be truncated considerably. But there doesn't seem to be any enthusiasm to do that. And why do special votes traditionally lean to the left? Well, they didn't always, but in recent years that's been the pattern. And it's been principally the people living overseas, the New Zealanders, the expats who vote, and they vote probably more on sort of nostalgic principle than the reality of what's going on in the country at the time. Special votes cast in New Zealand are cast more in line with the general um, outcome on the day. But I think there's a factor about special votes this time that people are overlooking uh, with the overseas votes. Given the noise that there was during the pandemic about uh, COVID refugees and people frustrated they couldn't get back to New Zealand, it may not be that the previous prevalence for the left prevails to anything like the same extent. There might be a lot of angry New Zealanders over in you know, Britain or elsewhere still furious they couldn't get home during the pandemic, and they may not be inclined to vote Labour or the Greens this time around. How long do you think it's going to be before we actually know the makeup of this government? Well, let, let's work backwards from that. There's a period specified in the Constitution Act within which Parliament has to meet after a general election. And I think from memory that, that runs out about early to mid-December. The Governor-General has already said that if there's not a government formed by then, she will have to go ahead and open Parliament and deliver a, a speech from the throne on behalf of the caretaker government, which would be rather extraordinary, a bit messy. So if you start from mid-December, things have got to be in place. What we then know is the Port Waikato by-election, which could have a, a, an influence, is the 25th of November. All the special votes have to be declared. The writs have to be formally returned to the clerk of the writs by the 3rd of November. But probably in about 10 days' time, the special vote results will start to drift out. In addition to that, uh, Christopher Luxon's indicated he, there's, there's a, I think, a Pacific Forum meeting in early November and an APEC meeting that he would quite like to be at as Prime Minister. So if you put all these things into the mix, I think that the pressure is going to be on the parties to reach some sort of a deal, probably in the next couple of weeks or so, certainly no longer than that. I guess there's that danger that if things drag on, people just, oh, people get sick of it, don't they?
Yeah, they do. And I think that's the real factor, particularly for a new government that's wanting to seize the initiative, grab the momentum and sort of build on the support it got on election day. The last thing you want is to have turned off the electorate before you've even taken office. So that, that, that will be a factor. On the other hand, they'll be wary of moving too quickly. National made the big mistake in 2014 when it had a majority on the night of saying to the United Future Act and the Maori Party, look, we don't need you, but you've been good friends over the last three years and before, so we'll keep you, but we're not going to give you anything, and sign deals, which we, from my point of view, we're quite happy to do on the Monday because it was an open check. And then when they discovered they had, didn't have a majority, they came back and said, oh, look, you know, can we renegotiate because things have changed? And the three support parties all said, no, we've got signed deals with you, uh, which, which all basically say we're committed to confidence and supply only, which created some problems for the government for the next uh, three years. So I think they'll be wary of repeating that mistake. They want to have a better sense of where the lie of the land is, but they may not need to have every last result in before they've got that. Getting back to election night, why were the Greens so happy? I mean, you know, they didn't get into power. Wow, far out. Your work, your work has delivered a Green Party campaign that has once again defied history. No, but they've, it's very interesting. I was just looking at the figures. The Greens got 10 and just a 10.6% of the party vote, which was a lot less than most opinion polls were predicting. On the other hand, uh, it was about 8% at the last election. So they've gained probably about 25% in their party vote. But more importantly, not only did they hold Auckland Central, but they picked up two electorate seats in Wellington. Now, that's chopped a few people off the, the list who might otherwise expect it to have got in. But it does give them a sounder footing for the future. You know, if, if at the next election the Green vote was to drop, say, to, I don't know, pick a figure, 5%, they've got that backstop of three electorate seats now to fall back on. So they were pretty, I think, uh, chuffed at that. That's a considerable achievement. Minor parties don't often win seats, and they, they've got three of them now. Here's one that a few people have been asking. Why can't Labour and National form a coalition? That's been the perennial question for many, many years. And many would say that the the differences between them, and we saw that during the, the leaders' debates, are pretty minimal. I think basically the simple answer is entrenched history. They're too bitter a set of opponents to overcome that. Will it happen? Who knows? There's a good example um, in Ireland uh, Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael, the two main parties there, in similar position to National and Labour ideologically. Um, since the Irish uh, Civil War in the 1920s have been daggers drawn. But they have one common enemy, and theirs was Sinn Féin. And when Sinn Féin emerged as the third party and a potential government player at the last election, for the first time ever, the two main parties formed a grand coalition where they've swapped the prime ministership every couple of years. And witted entry into what for many of them must have been at one point an unthinkable coalition with Fine Gael and the Green Party. So in extraordinary circumstances, it could happen if, for instance, uh, the Greens or I suspect Party Māori became sufficiently dominant that you couldn't form a government without them being a really dominant player. That might be enough to force the two big parties together, but uh, I can't see it in the short term. I'm in it for you. A more confident and a more prosperous New Zealand. If you want real change for the better, stand with me. There is talk that the advertising should stop when pre-voting begins, when people can actually start voting. Well, it's an anomaly at the moment. On election day, you can have no publicity at all 
regarding the election. No polling, no media coverage. You can't put things on social media, et cetera, et cetera. All hoardings have to be down. But for the two weeks before that, when early voting is underway, none of those rules apply. I think that is an anomaly. And I think there needs to be some uh, reconsideration of that because it's rather bizarre to say that you vote sort of in a vacuum on election day, but if you choose to vote early, you've got all the paraphernalia and all the pamphlets and all the publicity all around you. And uh, if you want a level playing field, that seems to me to be an inconsistency. Now, practically, if you were to say, well, from, from the time early voting begins, we've got we've got a sort of a media blackout on publicity. The last two weeks would be pretty boring. Um, in this election alone, I think there were two or three leaders debates in that time. There were the other big debates. None of those could occur. No public meetings, no candidate canvassing, etc. So it would be a bit unusual. But as it stands at the moment, I think it is anomalous. What stood out for you on election night? One of the things is not, not such a strong presence of uh, women leaders. Yes, it's interesting, actually, looking at uh, Labour's losses. I haven't done the figure right down to the last degree, but the overwhelming majority of the MPs defeated for the Labour Party on Saturday were women. So that will reflect the makeup of the new parliament. There's a fairly strong intake of women in the new National Party lineup. But uh, I think that I haven't, I can't be sure on this, but the 50% plus parliament we had in the last election probably won't be repeated. So that's one issue. I think the other issue is the clean out uh, has affected future leadership possibilities. It's pretty hard if Chris Hipkins decides to stand down to see just who his obvious replacement and all the likely ones have either been defeated or ruled themselves out. Uh, looking to the other parties, I mean, the highlights for me were the performance of Te Party Māori. I thought that was an extraordinary effort. While people were raising the possibility of the Hauraki Waikato seat falling... Will be gone. Our longest serving Wahine Māori will be out of Parliament and we'll be welcoming in our youngest MP in over a hundred years. If that's not an illustration of the turning of the tide, I don't know what is. No one, I think, quite saw some of the other things that were happening and a good strong party vote as well. The Greens. I wasn't surprised they won Wellington Central, and I'd said as recently as Friday that if they won strongly in Wellington Central, that would probably spill over into Rongatai, which is what happened. But they'll be ecstatic to have Auckland Central, Wellington Central and Rongatai, a big, strong toehold for them in, in two of the major cities. What does Liz Gunn do now? I mean, we're talking about her New Zealand Loyal Party. What does she do now? She had 26,000 votes. Well, she's, she's got a big group. I don't think they would have got to the position of ever getting representation. But if you look at them, you look at the Tamaki's Freedom Movement, there's two or three other fringe parties all picked up votes. There's a pretty solid core there. I think the first thing they all need to do if they want to continue as a political movement is to get together under one umbrella and not several because they just dissipate their efforts. I think the second thing Liz Gunn needs to do is get a decent lawyer when it comes to putting together your party list and make sure you get it you know, properly in on time and according to the rules. Uh, but at that level of votes, um, there's a potential well for them to uh, mine for the future if they are of a mind to, or whether uh, their message was a sort of a purely anti-vaccine one rather than an anti-sort of wider control one. That will be interesting to see just how that movement develops. Um, but yeah, it was a surprisingly strong showing. Okay, so it could be several weeks before we really see what this government looks like. Once it's in place, what do you see as the quickest first changes that we're going to see? 
Well, I, I, there's been talk of a mini budget before Christmas. I think that will be conditioned by the time it takes to bring a government together. I suspect getting some legislation together to give effect to some of National's key promises, whether it be around tax changes, they don't need to take effect immediately, but they can have the legislation in place and out there so that it's seen to be doing something. I think given uh, Christopher Luxon's comment about reconnection with the world, I think that's why he's keen to get to APEC and some of these other meetings. Uh, he's talked about getting to India in his first 100 days to try and uh, revive that uh, struggling trade negotiation. So I think you'll see a lot of things that look symbolic and give an impression of action and, and a sense of direction. But I doubt there's going to be much in the way of practical announcement before Christmas, simply because time won't allow it. The All Blacks are back in the World Cup picture. Is the mood of the country, I'm thinking about this weekend, which was extraordinary in so many ways, the mood of the country from this weekend, we've signalled a change in government, the All Blacks had a crucial win and it's springtime. Are all those factors in a change of the national mood? In a funny sort of way, yes. Coincidentally, I saw the film Uproar last night, which is a New Zealand film which is a great throwback to the Springbok tour controversy for those of us who remember it. And I was thinking at the time, the thing about that was the scars that that left took several years to heal, in part because Muldoon was re-elected in 1981 and didn't fall until 1984. Now, if you contrast that with today and the deep scars we've got, I think principally as a result of the pandemic and the divisions that that, that caused about MIQ and about vaccines and about lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera, the government has been defeated. A new government comes in. So Luxon's got a glorious opportunity to sort of put the past behind him and say, look, that was then, this is now. As you say, we need to focus on bringing this country together. Um, if the All Blacks go ahead and win the World Cup, that will be a factor, but it will be a short-term factor. But again, an important sort of rallying point. He set out on Saturday night to talk about a positive tone. He's really got to live that now and, and seem to be a healer and a unifier. I want to bring the country together. I want to actually make sure that we are focused on delivering outcomes for New Zealanders. That's what improves their daily lives. Uh, I'm a person who likes to bring teams together and make sure that I get the best out of that team and use all the skills that are in that team. Really, in the last five years in New Zealand, we've, we've lost our sense of tolerance for different opinions. We used to be very good at saying, well, you know, everyone to their own, your right to hold your own view. We now have a much more defined sense of, and I'm, I'm using sort of moral inverted commas here, what's right and what's wrong. You know, you're either for us or against us. Mm. I think that's all coming out of the pandemic response. And Luxon's, because he's a fresh face, can sort of put all that to one side if, he, if he's of a mind to and say, okay, we do need to start to move forward. We do need to be more respectful of diversity. We do need to be more tolerant of different opinions. And we need to be more engaged. Now, a big challenge, he won't do it immediately, but if he if he sticks to the language he used on Saturday night, he's got a chance. But the thing is, a lot of this division is over race, isn't it? And, and you know, what we're seeing in this new parliament, a much stronger Te Pāti Māori, uh, and then on the other side, you've got David Seymour from ACT promising to yep. have a referendum on the treaty, to me, that looks very divisive. 
Yeah, I'd be very surprised if that referendum ever takes place, or if it does, it will be in such a watered-down form as to be sort of pretty marginal. You're right. Uh, I think that what's happening and has been happening over the last well, probably two or three elections is the whole changing of parliament. The, it's not just the browning of parliament, but it's the whole sort of generational change. And I think that's where the new government, whatever its ideological uh, persuasion, has to sort of get on board and sort of start to understand the changing face of New Zealand and what it means. And I think that, you know, Luxon's talking that way, whether he can do it's another question. But there are people like Brooke Van Velden of the younger generation. I think she's got the capacity to reach out across the lines. I think that there are people, despite their hard line, into Party Māori who are prepared to talk about where we might head. But that discussion needs to take place um, sort of whatever the politics are, that needs to be an ongoing one. The last thing we'd want to end up with, it seems to me, is something like what happened in Australia at the weekend, you know, a pretty innocuous proposal about the voice put up, but knocked back 60-40 on a public vote. That's pretty divisive. Even if there's not a referendum on the treaty, mm. this issue of co-governance is, is hanging there and there's been a lot of talk that yeah. you know that's going to be dealt to. Yeah, well, in reality, it won't be because I, th- I think the term will be dealt to. And that's, I, th- I think it was an inaccurate term to start, f- start with. We've had shared management arrangements for many years under both governments for a lot of areas. They've grown out of treaty settlements. They've come into the areas of resource management, et cetera, et cetera, land management generally. And th- they've worked pretty well. And no one really is arguing about overturning those. But I think that co-governance became a sort of a, you know an overarching term of frustration with the sense that um, the Labour government was um, focusing on an agenda that New Zealanders weren't necessarily comfortable with. Take it one step at a time, work it through, and I think you'll, you'll get a better outcome. I think one of the lessons from this government, the, the, the defeated government, is that it tried to always be one step ahead of public opinion uh, because it wanted to be leading you know, whether it be climate change or pandemics or co-governance or whatever. I think New Zealanders are a bit intolerant of that. They'll work with the government of the day at their pace. And I think the government of the day needs to understand the pace of New Zealanders and work alongside them. And then you make progress. It won't all happen, you know, like the famous um, uh, Rachel Hunter ad, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. And I just think a bit of patience is required because where we do have these shared management arrangements at the moment, they work particularly well and no one's questioning them. The election result provides a huge opportunity, which I'd hoped that Jacinda Ardern may have taken, but didn't, to really start to focus on what it means to be a New Zealander today and all our guises, with all our different cultural and other appreciations, we've got this strong opportunity to forge this as the really great multi-ethnic, multicultural nation of the world. And I just think there's a chance that's gone begging there because a lot of our other divisions would be overcome if we focused on how we work out you know, what it means to be someone who lives in these islands today, what our challenges and opportunities are and how we all work together to achieve them. And uh, Luxon sort of started to talk that way on Saturday night. Time will tell whether he can deliver, but for the country's sake, I hope he can. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Peter Dunn. Kakite anō. Ka